You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, this is episode number 153, and today we will be talking about the great Christmas film, A Christmas Story, with Ralphie and his BB gun. I am Danny Anderson. I am assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Joining me today is Dr. Nathan Gilmore, also of Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And with us is Dr. Michael Farmer of Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you gentlemen doing today? I'm hanging in, Danny. I am all right. Excellent, excellent. Are you ready for the holidays? Yes. I'm never ready for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an abstract question because, like, what aspect of the holidays are you ready for? Are you and which towards? holidays? Uh, yes, yes. Basically none of it. I'm basically right. ready for none of it. I, I haven't yet purchased my fireworks, Danny. <laughs> my, <laughs> my Columbus Day decorations haven't arrived. Yes. Uh, I think there well, are, I think there are cultures globally though that do celebrate Christmas with fireworks, so Oh, that's probably true, yes. In Cleveland, I, Cleveland, Ohio, they celebrate everything with fireworks. I, I, think, I, I think you're just thinking of the river catching on fire. <laughs> that's probably why. Um, it's our perpetual lionization of that great moment in our history. So, Well, guys, today we're talking about, for our Christmas episode, uh, a, a very popular Christmas story, a uh, Christmas movie called A Christmas Story, uh, with Ralphie and his BB gun and the old man and the leg lamp and all this sort of stuff. So uh, let's just kind of get started today. Nathan? This movie has a really unusual reception history. Uh, upon its release in 1983, it was kind of a blip on the popular radar, and now it's kind of its own industry. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the ways the movie became the juggernaut that it is today and speculate about why? Well, sure. This is the first time I've actually done any real research on this movie, so it's been a lot of fun sort of digging up some of the backstory. Uh, this movie actually started out as an HBO presentation. Uh, later on, uh, t- uh, the Turner Networks acquired the rights to it, and that's really when it became part of American uh, pop culture there in the late 80s, early 90s. The real turnaround, though, and this is a fascinating little bit, happened in the late 1990s when uh, – Basically, the copyright for It's a Wonderful Life, which had been floating in limbo for decades, uh, and so every television network every Christmas would play it as often as they wanted. Well, NBC acquired to the right acquired the rights, pardon me, to It's a Wonderful Life, and so NBC would just play it a couple times every December. Well, into that vacuum, the Turner Networks decided to invent the. Christmas Story Marathon, where every Christmas Eve they would play it nonstop from midnight to midnight, uh, and they would play it a good deal in between there as well. So now, you know, in the years since, I think 1998 was when they started the marathon, and 1997 was when NBC captured the rights to It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, 
if you turn on the TV just looking for a Christmas movie to watch, statistically, you're more likely to hit a Christmas story than any other movie. And so for that reason, the last you know 16 years or so, uh, it has defined Christmas uh, really in a way that you know National Lampoon and the various Scrooge movies and even It's a Wonderful Life have not defined the Christmas season. Uh, Michael, is there anything else that makes this uh, sort of a, a pop culture phenomenon? No, I, I mean, I really think that that um, that marathon is what did it. I, I remember being vaguely aware of this movie when I was a kid. I am pretty sure they showed it either at my elementary school or like the daycare center I went to afterwards. <laughs> but I was at an age where if it wasn't a cartoon, I wasn't interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I remember, you know, it was the the late nineties, like you say, when it, when it became really a, uh, a, a fixture on the, the, the basic cable and we didn't have basic cable, but when you live in Atlanta and have, have, uh, have an antenna, you get TBS. So, uh, you know, it was, I, I had access to it as well. Um, so for, for that reason, I've always felt a little bit outside this movie because it's not something I watched when I was a kid, but something mm-hmm. that kind of appeared when I was an adult, even though. The movies as old as I am are just about. I think it's really interesting uh, that it became a kind of de facto replacement for It's a Wonderful Life, which is yeah. kind <laughs> a of, movie I've never <laughs> cared anything about. Right. But mythologically, I mean, that's sort of like the Christmas movie that everybody thinks about sort of in terms of the mythology of popular culture. Sure, sure. But it's kind but, of like the artist formerly known as Prince. Once you dig a little bit under the surface, it comes down to a contract dispute. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it, it, in terms of uh, the tone of two movies, really opposite because one is uh, much more sort of – I mean I, I would say this movie is much more kind of crass and revels in kind of absurdity than uh, something mm-hmm. like It's a Wonderful Life, which strives towards sincerity in, in an interesting way. And so I think that that's a really interesting uh, – uh, like replacement for for that in terms of a cultural role. Well, and they're both set around the same time, right? I mean, the Christmas story that the time frame is never given, but it's clearly the late thirties, early forties. And that's, that's right. right right around when it's a wonderful life is, is coming out. And I, I didn't bother to look up what year it's a wonderful life comes out, but I'm sure it's late thirties, early forties. So you're right. I mean, it is, it is interesting to mm-hmm. replace that because it becomes this kind of cultural replacement. This, a, a difference in the way we look at things like holidays. I'm interested to hear you call it crass, though. It, it seems it seems so sweet in a way compared to like some things that would come later. So compare it even to something like Elf, which is a, a sweet-ish Christmas movie that came out about a decade ago, and and a Christmas story I think looks very wholesome indeed. Well, it does. I, it's it's a little shocking, though, to see children swear and, and these sorts of things. You know what I mean? And I guess that's that's the level of crassness. I'm not saying it's a crass movie. I think it is a, ultimately a very sweet movie, but one that doesn't sort of ignore the kind of dirty. I mean, it's a dirty movie. Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of just the I mean, not not in terms of. Uh, you know, me- metaphysical dirt, but like, in terms of physical dirt, <laughs> every- everything looks like smoggy and, you know, well, it's and, filmed in Cleveland. And, and, and it's filmed in Cleveland, which is something I certainly want to talk about with this. I, I, I'm sorry, Danny, but uh, when I do uh, enter the rave scene, my DJ name's going to be Metaphysical Dirt now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> When, when when Nathan when Nathan goes back to 1999 and enters the rave scene, <laughs> gonna spend some 808 state in the prodigy. 
<laughs> oh boy. Um, what have we wrought? Um, well, in any, at any rate, uh, both of those movies, it's a wonderful life. And this one, uh, really kind of steep themselves in one way or another with nostalgia. And so, Michael, this movie revels in nostalgia as few others really do. From the, the popular culture references to the locations used in the filming, uh, the movie tries to capture uh, or at least uh, invent an image of the past. Can you talk about how it does this and more generally maybe how nostalgia functions in our lives? So I am not enough of a film person to know if this is intentional or a limitation of 1981-82 videotape. Uh, but when you look at this movie, it's very warm. Uh, the, the, tape, the tape has this kind of soft glow to it that, that mm-hmm. makes it look old-fashioned. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's an intentional artistic choice or, like I said, if, if that's just the way movies from this era look. Because I've seen other movies, obviously, from the early 80s, and they also have that, but not as much as this one. So I'm going to assume it's an artistic choice. And, of course, the entire framework of the movie is built on Ralphie as an adult looking back on his life. It's all, um, it's all based on uh, Gene Shepard's – he has a book. I think, I think the book is called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is yes. which is a, a collection of short memoirs slash fiction pieces. I'm not sure anybody really knows how much mm-hmm. of these stories are true and how much he's just kind of making up. But he's in that Mark Twain school of tall tale autobiography humor, right? And and so mm-hmm. you really the most distinctive part of the movie for me is is Shepard's own voiceover narration where he where he kind of fills in the gaps uh, the, the, the scenes you see on the screen leave. Um, and, and he has this wonderful folksy Midwestern voice. In fact, um, Disney fans will recognize him as the, um, the main character in the carousel of progress at Walt Disney world, uh, mm-hmm. as well. So it's a, it's, it's a voice that is kind of custom built for that nostalgic impulse, this, this looking back, but at the same time, because it's a comedy and, and because, because, uh, because Shepard belongs to that, I I hesitate to say David Letterman school of Midwestern comedy, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, (laughs) it is, it's so self-effacing and so uh, arch in some ways that the nostalgic impulse is held out at the same time that it's pulled back. So really you're never given to understand that, Oh, life was so much better in the late thirties, early forties than it is now in 1983. You know, uh, mm-hmm. instead you're given, you're given to see that when you're a child, you have a certain mode of existing in the world. One that has its own set of joys and miseries and, and the movie shows you the joys uh but not without making fun of them so when he mm-hmm. gets the uh when he does spoiler alert when he finally gets the red rider bb gun that he has been asking for for the entire movie the very first time he pulls the trigger he shoots his eye out or comes very close to shooting his <laughs> eye out so so i mean th- this is this is a uh this is a movie that's not afraid to make fun of um children for wanting things but at the same time it shows it shows the kind of savages of life when you're he, he's what nine or ten i think i believe so yeah fourth Something grade like so yeah, yeah. I, I, they say fourth grade but he's reading silas marner for some reason so you know <laughs> maybe maybe it was the good old days um <laughs> you you see these kind of sufferings he goes through and again not without making fun of them so uh, 
so for example, he's waited weeks and weeks to get this Dakota ring for his little orphan Annie radio show. And when he finally gets it, he, it, it, it's this huge buildup and it turns out the secret message they've been sending is be sure to drink your Ovaltine. And it's mm-hmm. just this, 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 well, now I'll use the word crass commercial advertisement. And, and, and you, you feel in a certain way his pain. And at the same time, you're encouraged to laugh at it because what a silly thing to hope for. What did he think? That there's a real person called Little Orphan Annie who's actually sending him coded messages over the radio. So I, I, it is a nostalgic movie, but at the same time, it's a movie that makes fun of that nostalgic impulse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, about the only thing I'd add to that is that the family dynamic in the movie uh, is definitely sort of your standard, you know, uh, bumbling but ultimately, you know, honest father along with the omnicompetent mother who nonetheless rolls over whenever the father says to, uh, you know. So, I mean, it's 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 got that sort of American sitcom tradition worked into it as well. It does. Um, and I actually think that that – Darren McGavin, who plays the old man in the movie, uh, who's that's his sort of uh, official title in the movie. He's never really given a name. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he, uh, I think, in many ways makes this movie work because of his awareness of the kind of uh, way that the movie negotiates nostalgia that Michael's talking about. His uh, like he has this very cheeky um, uh, persona in the movie that he's overplaying that kind of uh, hyper masculine like father knows best right, role, right. Uh, to a really exaggerated degree. And when he's, you know, battling the furnace in the basement, he's, <laughs> he, he, he's saying all of these curse words. We understand them to be curse words, but they're all sort of made up curse words like uh, daggett blah and all these sorts <laughs> of uh, things that I've come to take to saying myself when I'm angry at things. And, and, uh, uh, um, and so I feel like, uh, the, what Michael was talking about in terms of its kind of awareness of the limitations of nostalgia are one of the things that uh, make it work as a, as a really kind of meaningful piece of nostalgia in, in, in a way that maybe It's a Wonderful Life doesn't so much in, in this day and age. Right. And I just want to say real quick about the old man. I mean, what's greatest, I think, about the old man is not even the made-up cuss words, which are pretty phenomenal, but the way that when he doesn't have a line in a scene, he is still framing the scene with his facial expressions. <laughs> yeah, he's really fantastic. Yes, when, uh, when Randy is uh, eating or, you know, slopping, sloppily eating yeah, that... his mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that scene I don't think would work without Darren McGavin's reaction to it in a lot of ways, right? Um, yes, and uh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that... Um, in the eighties, uh, nostalgia like was playing a different role because I, I feel like there is sort of a it's a less innocent time than perhaps you know the the, the renderings of the past almost necessarily had to come with a built in critique of, right. of that of that past and, and I think that this this movie is sort of a uh, an artifact of that and and know that Bob Clark, the director of this movie who we haven 't talked about yet um, but previously had made the movie porkies right and this is sort oh, of that's uh, true. A, um, yes uh, so this is like when I was a kid i mean that 's like the preeminent teenage sex comedy right, which is also a nostalgic film of the past, looking back in the fifties i, I 
I haven't. Honestly, I have not seen the movie. So, um, but I, I've just read about it. Um, believe me about that. Um, but it's uh, so it seems to be something that he was maybe really suited to do uh, with this movie as well. So it's one of the it's the bringing the crassness of that teenage sex comedy to a childhood nostalgia of Christmas is an interesting uh, narrative move. Nothing else. So. Um, well, Nathan, uh, Michael's already talked a little bit about this, but the film is based on the works of Gene Shepard, who is one of your Indiana brethren. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about him and his work and, and his role, uh, multiple roles in the movie? Uh, in particular, for such a sweet movie, there is the nasty edge to it that we've been talking about so far. How does Shepard's brand of humor reconcile those two things? Well, first of all, my already stole the one bit of trivia I had about the Disney World thing, so thanks, Michael. But uh, (laughs) That's all right. Uh, Gene Shepard is a a comedy writer, a humor writer from the Chicagoland area of Indiana, uh, right there on Lake Michigan, so it's pretty much the, you know, pretty much an extension of Chicago more than it is uh, related to Indianapolis. So a couple things that, that that brings up. One is that all of the place references in the movie are to northern Indiana places, right? Uh, the web of obscenity is hovering over Lake Michigan. The line at the mall stretches back to Terre Haute. Uh, it's, you know, to the extent that this movie is situated anywhere, it is situated there in the northern half of Indiana. The other thing is that uh, Shepard's own humor, and as I was digging around, I found this out, uh, was a pretty significant influence on Jerry Seinfeld, among others. So uh, if you think about, you know, sort of Mark Twain on one end of this thing, think about Jerry Seinfeld as someone who kind of grows out of Gene Shepard's brand of humor. It's this observational humor. It's looking out at the world and seeing the absurdity in it. But on the other hand, it is a sort of absurdist comedy that tends to like people. Uh, and honestly, I mean, that's that's one of the things that I think distinguishes Gene Shepard's sort of humor from Dave Letterman's, you know, which tends to be very snarling and, you know, um, trying to think, misanthropic, for lack of a better word. Uh, in Christmas Story, you really don't have any people that I can think of, and of course you guys are going to come up with an exception as soon as I say that, that you really hold in contempt. Even Scott Farkas has his own charm, I Excuse think. Excuse me, <laughs> that that character's name is Scott Farkas. Scott Farkas. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear heavens. Um, so I think that is, you know, really how Gene Shepard brings together both the absurd, absurd character of the humor, but then also characters that are likable, uh, that just tends to be something that comes out in that kind of humor. Um, now the, the, the reason that Danny had the sly S on roles in the film is that of course he is the voiceover narrator of the movie. He also makes a brief cameo appearance. Uh, when they are waiting in line to see Santa Claus, uh, the man in the hat that says, no kid, the line ends here, it starts there, that's Gene Shepard. What else you got, Michael? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to prove you wrong about whether you hold anybody in contempt. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Santa I, Claus? Well, I was going to say, like, he would be the one that you would, but there is a weird moment, like, in general, like, you you already sort of established how the movie sort of is working on two registers, Michael, how, you know, it's at once nostalgic, but also making fun of that nostalgia, like, the the scene where Santa Claus is being utterly cruel to Ralphie and, and all the kids, uh, and just worrying about getting off work on time, uh, he... Uh, 
he from that perspective from that narrative perspective of the children he does seem like really kind of despicable uh as do his elves but then there's that little moment at the very tail end of that scene where you have the long shot of the whole thing and away with that distance he actually it almost seems like the kid's memories are influencing that kind of moment for him he doesn't seem as despicable from that distance and and i feel like um the movie is because it's I don't know that it, it, it takes a single position so strongly that we can even be that critical of Santa Claus there. Well, I mean, certainly if you put yourself in Santa's shoes, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure I wouldn't be similarly cruel to poor Ralphie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is the only part of the movie I can think of where we actually get a Ralphie eye view. Am I, am I misremembering? Oh, um, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about that. There's that I well, mean, a really terrifying shot of him climbing back up the, the slide <laughs> to ask for the BB gun and Santa kicking him in the head. That's the part I remember seeing when I was a kid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's one of the most memorable moments that everybody laughs the hardest at in that movie too uh, because and that's what i mean about this movie's weird crassness is that the the sweetest parts are also kind of their most cruel um and so yeah anything else about shepherd though and, and his brand of humor i i am unfamiliar with him outside of this film i have to say uh, and his in his narration of the carousel of progress so i don't <laughs> i don't i don't have much to add i'm afraid yeah danny you got anything on shepherd well, no, uh, only the fact that what you're talking about, the kind of um, uh, the situatedness, uh, situ- uh, well, his situation as near Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. he's he sort of not southern Indiana, for example, I think makes Cleveland, Ohio, a- as a very fitting uh uh like setting or a place to, to film this film, which it, which it has. And I'll talk more about that later. But because it's very kind of dirty and industrial and, and, and Midwestern. And I think that you see a lot of that in Shepard's in the humor that comes across in this movie is that it really comes out of a particular kind of mindset that uh, is um, like very situated in the sort of industrial north. And so even though it's Indiana, this isn't like uh, uh, John Mellencamp in Indiana, right? This isn't, <laughs> this isn't uh, farms. And that sort of thing. Right, I mean, that's right. the extent of my Indiana knowledge. Uh, I'm afraid John Mellencamp and David Letterman. But uh, Nathan, would, uh, you, would you like to compare him to like Kurt Vonnegut, who, who it, it, it seems to me might have some things in common with yes. Shepard's approach? Yeah, yeah. You know, of course, Kurt Vonnegut went to high school in Indianapolis, and you know, uh, a lot of folks like myself, you know, like to say that we are uh, Kurt Vonnegut Hoosiers, not Dan Quayle Hoosiers. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, honestly, I see Vonnegut as having a much more acerbic edge to him than Gene Shepard does. I mean, I, I can't think of a, a Kurt Vonnegut novel where there aren't utterly contemptible characters. So I, it, it's one of those things where I, I think that uh, by geographic coincidence, they came from the same place, but I wouldn't call their humor the same flavor necessarily. I was just thinking in, in Vonnegut, you always have that humanity kind of beating underneath the brutality. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But I guess in Vonnegut, you also have, I mean, the ah, and and I, I can't think of a, a a good phrase for it, but I mean the the stupidity that becomes evil in just about every Vonnegut novel. You know, it's 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 this you know sort of willing ignorance that leads to people's destruction. 
Sure. And I mean, that sort of darkness, I really don't associate with a Christmas story. No, and I wonder if, if you're just, you know, Slaughterhouse-Five deals with World War II. This deals with a child's Christmas. I wonder, yeah, true enough, true enough. I wonder if the stakes, you know, there's a, there's a famous line Joyce Carol Oates has about Updike where she says that his, his short stories deal with tragedies that by failing to achieve tragic grandeur inexplicably become comedies. <laughs> and and I, I wonder, I wonder if, if, if what we're dealing with here is the, the, that Vonnegutian impulse uh-huh. kept within tight enough quarters that it, it, you're able to laugh at it. Uh, you're able to merely laugh at it instead of laughing and crying at the same time. Yeah, I guess, though, if this were a Vonnegut story, the old man would have been a raging alcoholic. Yeah, well, probably true. <laughs> and probably from a different planet. Well, that too. <laughs> I do think, though, it's interesting that the the physical presence that he takes in the movie is, you know, one of the meaner people in it, this sort of just faceless, like, uh, a father figure who's sure. mean to a little kid telling him to get to the back of the line. I think that that's, that's an interesting cameo for, for this, uh, for this writer to play in the movie. So, mm-hmm. um, real good. Um, well, uh, Michael, I don't think that I can think at least of a more episodic narrative in movie history. Uh, in many ways, the movie's made up of a bunch of like little discrete mini films and yet it does maintain a coherent arc as, as a whole. Can you talk about the film's episodic nature and explain about how that formal quality might actually be important for the film's success? Well, it is certainly important for the way it has become a classic, which is to say I, I cannot think of a movie better suited to the sort of 24-hour marathon than this one because you can um, mm-hmm. you can dip in and out and you won't miss anything. You won't miss anything in the sense that you this is, this yep. is easily divided into these seven, eight-minute chunks uh, for which you don't really need any kind of background. They're all kind of self-contained. It's really, it's really kind of a set of interconnected short stories. And in fact, I was reading that when uh, In God We Trust All Others Pay Cash came out, Shepard was very upset that people called it a short story collection because he saw it as a novel. Uh, I, not having read the book, I can't speak to it, but certainly this movie doesn't strike me as a movie so much as a a collection of short films that happen to be organized around the same characters. Mm-hmm. I had never seen the movie in order um, because my experience to it has my experience of it has been confined to dipping in and out on Christmas Eve between various family obligations, you know. Um, in fact, there's parts I'd never seen at all. I'd never seen the first scene, and now that I say that, I can't even remember what it was. Um, <laughs> but I, I know that when we were watching it, I had I, I noticed that I had never seen it. But yeah, it's, it's, right. it is as episodic a film as I can think of that is not actually just a series of short films. Mm-hmm. And and to some extent that makes it more digestible. Certainly it sets it apart from other Christmas movies. It also puts it, I think, in the company of like an evening of watching television Christmas specials <laughs> uh, because because each of these pieces works on its own merits as well as – I mean there's a couple overarching arcs, right? You have, you, you have of course, the Red Rider BB gun. Mm-hmm. Um, you have – you have the 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 leg lamp, the the very famous leg lamp, which I, I think is is responsible for my favorite line in the movie, which is he breaks his wife breaks the 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 leg lamp by accident, and then there's no tape, 
to fix it and he yells at, he yells at her you used all the tape on purpose <laughs> which is which is great angry dad logic <laughs> um, and one that i have employed on more than one occasion myself yes me too even though i'm not a dad um then then you have the scott farkas plot which is really i guess just a couple of vignettes but uh, it's pretty satisfying nevertheless to see that little weasel cry the Scott Farkas affair, as it came to be known. Yeah, yes. excuse me. But uh, overall, I would say it's not a terribly cohesive movie. Um, the, there's a couple of through lines, but mostly the glory of the movie is that it's so scattered. Mm-hmm. And what's great about that is that, you know, if you bring this film up in conversation to three different people, you'll have three different, oh, yeah, that's that movie where... <laughs> well, they cut <laughs> the head off the goose. Yeah, yeah, or yes. you know, where they have the leg lamp, or where they get the BB gun, or where they, you know, have the bully and the toady, right? So I mean, it's it really is a movie that, uh, you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it, it's a movie that, you know, like Michael said, you know, if you are in a crowded house and you're kind of drifting from room to room, you really can pick up an episode because it's going to be on the TV, mm-hmm. uh, and then drift out of the room and you really don't miss anything. So I, I agree with Michael. I mean, that's the, that's not a defect of the movie that's part of its glory whereas like it's a wonderful life to compare it to the thing we've been comparing it to the whole time uh if you ask people for two scenes from it's a wonderful life you're going to get the scene where jimmy stewart confronts lionel barrymore and the scene the scene where uh clarence gets his wings right where where the the end of the movie when he hears the bell ring Mm -hmm. yeah and and i feel like that the uh the episodic nature of it too also kind of works with its overall kind of obsession with consumerism like i I do feel like danny stealing my thunder okay well stealing my thunder (laughs) well and we'll hear much more about that later (laughs) not much later (laughs) perhaps as a segue um, we'll move to to gilmore right now uh this is a christmas film and for many people the christmas film uh so i wonder uh, uh if we might spend some time on that subject uh what vision of christmas does this film offer and how might it actually be troubling for christians uh in some in some aspects well to talk about the bookends first the movie begins at the window of a department store and it ends with a nine-year-old boy clutching his christmas gift to his chest as he drifts off to sleep. Uh, that should tell us something about the vision that this presents. This is very Midwestern, like we've said before. It's also very American. Uh, you know, some of the signature scenes are at a shopping mall, at a Christmas tree lot. Uh, this film deals a great deal with the buying and selling that goes on at Christmas. Um, and I'm trying to think, because I, cause I thought about this when you wrote up the questions, Danny, uh, I don't think that there are any mentions of Christianity in the film. I mean, Not that uh, I can well, I mean, with the exception of when he's cussing out the furnace, you know, he says some people are Baptists, some are Catholics. My old man was an Oldsmobile man. Uh, I think that might be it. <laughs> so it, it, it is a Christmas that, you know, doesn't have Christ in it. So, you know, the you could say that it was a special forces uh, early insertion in the war on Christmas. Take that. <laughs> on christmas deniers uh but (laughs) um the other thing is of course that uh it is a christmas story in which you definitely have a sort of middle class middle american family 
Uh, there's really not much of a sense that they exist in a universe much bigger than Cleveland Street in northern Indiana. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's one of those things where, you know, if you think about Christmas as a sort of cosmic narrative in which the Son of God comes so that the entire cosmos can be redeemed, this is a far more local kind of a story. So, for my money, and and listeners, I mean, you can kick my butt about this as hard as you want, I'm all right having this kind of Christmas story running through our culture, largely because it might be an impetus to point us back to Advent, uh, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, Michael, what do you think? I mean, is this... Do you have uh, theological qualms about this movie? I guess the redemptive violence against Scott Farkas. Well, I, I didn't until you. Uh, I didn't until you raised them. I mean, you're right. There's, there, there's something. There's something a little troubling, I suppose, about its its vision of Christmas. But then again, it's told from the perspective of a nine year old. Yeah, and and I certainly don't remember getting um, particularly interested in metaphysical speculation at nine years old. I was much more interested in the things I was going to get. Mm-hmm. And it it at at the same time that it kind of deifies his consumerist desire, it also sort of makes fun of that, as Michael oh, mentioned sure, earlier. Sure. And, and so it is sort of uh, almost simultaneously undermining the consumerism that it's celebrating, um, uh, which is, I guess, I guess, nice of it. But uh, <laughs> so I did think of one moment where you do see a, a, a you know a Christian vision of Christmas is right at the beginning uh, where the, or outside the, the Higby store, which is uh, in public square in Cleveland uh, that was filmed. I totally recognizable to anybody from Cleveland. And uh, there's a, a group of African-American uh, carol singers outside of a fire burning in a barrel mm-hmm. singing uh, Go Go Tell it on, on the mountain. mountain. Yep. Right. And, and so I, it is interesting that the kind of religious hymn that's being sung uh, at that in the midst of all of this consumer activity is from a marginal group of people sort of at the margins of the activity. And so in mm-hmm. some ways it's a, a pretty, pretty uh, approximate, uh, appro- well, approximate vision of what Christmas actually is in our culture at large. <laughs> and so, you know, what strikes me is a lot of nonsectarian Christmas specials nevertheless have a message that Christmas is all about, giving or Christmas is all about family or Christmas is all about universal love, you know, leaving, leaving Christ out of it, but having this kind of um, cheerful humanist message. Christmas story doesn't bother with any of that. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the BB guns, baby. (laughs) You're going to play that at your rave, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, and also the, the movie itself, its reception, we talked before about the episodic nature of it lending itself to these marathons, which lends itself to its kind of ingrination to the popular imagination about Christmas. But, uh, the, someone a few years, several years ago was prescient enough to purchase the house that the store. That, the, that they used for Ralphie's house in the, in Cleveland. It's in a, a near west uh, neighborhood called Tremont, and they actually 
they created, uh, they recreated the house as best they can uh, to look like the the movie. They actually bought the house across the street and one down the street uh, that they've made into like a museum and a gift shop that goes along with this. And it gets massive amounts of traffic where people come there almost as a religious activity. I mean, uh, I myself have uh, taken part of this. Like we've taken, I've taken my kids uh, into this house and had my daughter sit under the sink and say, daddy's going to kill Ralphie to the camera. Right. And so uh, as everybody, <laughs> before and after me does in this line, right? It's it's very much a liturgical practice when you think about uh, uh, what we do. Yeah. And then we go to the gift Thank shop. Thank you, Jamie Smith. <laughs> I know. I, I think that I, I think Smith should have written about this in that book, actually. Yes. Um, and, uh, and then we go to the gift shop and we buy our leg lamps and, and we put them out for the holidays as if they're a manger scene. And, and, uh, and, and in fact, they've actually got a room now where they sell uh, Christmas vacation memorabilia as well with uh, Cousin Eddie emptying the, uh, the portable toilet into the sewer and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so it really has become its own kind of religious practice in a lot of ways when you think about it, which is a little disturbing when you think about it for such a movie that I, I happen to actually love very much. So. But uh, and and so and by the way, just a little plug for my old hometown. If you're in Cleveland, don't. I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's fine, but the Christmas Story House is a much cooler thing and much cheaper. So uh, definitely check that out if you're ever in Cleveland. So, um, well, uh, Michael, uh, this movie makes a really big deal of objects as well. We talked about the leg lamp already. Um, it's filled with props and costumes, and and this in part is what makes the movie. Uh, so memorable and marketable. Uh, and I just talked about the Christmas story house, uh, as being a sort of a shrine. Uh, can you talk about one or two of the film's props and speculate on their importance? I mean, I, I think even though we've already talked about it, you really do have to start with that leg lamp, right? Which is so garish and so tacky <laughs> and which, and, and functions so much as an emblem for everything that's wrong with this man's life, right? That he, he, is, he is such a remarkable failure, unbeknownst to his son, right? Because we get this through Ralphie's consciousness. Um, we, we, have to, we have to look at what's not being said in order to recognize it. The, the old man is an abject failure, so much so that, that he holds this awful, awful lamp up as a... Uh, as a prize and a proof of his success, he's won it by filling out a crossword puzzle correctly. And I, I, he, he tells his wife that he's going to win a million dollars. And what he wins instead is this lamp, which he treats like it's a million dollars and which is, he is heartbroken <laughs> when it, when it is accidentally destroyed, accidentally, not accidentally destroyed. So I, I think you have to start there. And, and, and the parallel there of course is the red rider BB gun, which, which is another, item that that a character believes is going to redeem his sorry life um mm -hmm. although the, the the bb gun is either more or less tragic depending on how you read it because ralphie's whole life is still in front of him um but on the other hand it contributes directly to his destruction in the <laughs> sense that it he he does get hit by it and it breaks his glasses and um so there's that uh i'm trying to think of some other good ones but those are the uh, those are the two that immediately come to mind. Um, well, you know the uh, the pink bunny suit that his <laughs> is it his aunt makes for him. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, and which his father saves him from. And and, yeah. and I, I think really one of the the kind of sweetest moments of the movie because you think, given everything that's happened up till now, Ralphie's going to have to wear this awful thing, and instead his father. Uh, 
demands that he take it off because he, what does he call he call it you he looks like a pink nightmare pink, oh, n- nightmare, nightmare. Yeah, yeah, that's right. nightmare there's a t-shirt that says that i'm, um, sure, I'm sure there's t-shirts yes. that have almost every line from the movie on yes. it nathan David? what am i leaving out Oh, I mean the uh, the Christmas tree itself. I mean, you know, first of all, the haggling over the Christmas tree at the lot uh, is one of the great scenes, and then of course the the scene where you know they blow a fuse trying to ignite too many strings of lights. Uh, you know, all you know, very much uh, dependent upon a physical object in the room. Uh, trying to think. I mean, the radio itself is sort of a a centerpiece for a, a number of scenes. Uh, Danny, what else? You've been to the museum. Oh, well, you, you hit on a lot of them, but the, the kind of little things that kind of, uh, populate the movie too, that kind of create the, the, the verisimilitude uh, of the time, which I think is part of what makes it work so powerfully as, as nostalgia, uh, because they're so, uh, rooted in the time for an eight-year-old little boy at the time. So when the teacher is collecting uh, the little fake teeth that the kids wear uh, to mm-hmm. tease her with, she opens her drawer and there's like chattering teeth and all these little sort of gag gifts that are so important to little kids. You know, I mean, every sort of little uh, quarter machine turning thing uh, that you get at the grocery store had these sorts of things in it. And so uh, the fact that they just sort of include those things along with his decoder pen and uh, the the kind of scarf that they use to to wrap uh, Randy up with that he can't put his arms down because he's so wrapped bundled up for Christmas. Like all of the sort of little details uh, of these objects, I think kind of contribute to its uh, effectiveness as nostalgia. Um, And that the the same nostalgia that it it pokes fun at, but it actually um, really lovingly creates in a lot of explicit detail. So I I think that uh, all of that stuff works together with the kind of major objects, the BB gun that you guys have already talked about. So, Mm -hmm. Um, well, um, we'll start with someone with Nathan. Um, It's our sort of final uh, as he called it last time, a wine and cheese question. Uh, this film is, uh, believe it or not, a vital, a vital element of the American Christmas experience. Uh, there, like we said, there's museums, there's 24 hour marathons, there's stage productions of this. They go on every year in Cleveland, at least. Um, uh, it really means something to a lot of people. Uh, and so on a personal note here, what's your favorite thing about the movie? Is it a scene, a particular joke, or memories of watching it with other people, whatever? And then uh, when you're done with that, uh, Nathan, can you pass it on to Michael? Well, honestly, my favorite thing about this movie is that uh, it it takes uh, Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, and it really turns it into the Christmas Story soundtrack. Uh, (laughs) I mean, and and I say this, uh, listeners, I, I dare you, if you have seen this movie more than once, uh, go try to listen to Peter and the Wolf and not hear it as the Scott Farkas music. <laughs> uh, I, I can't do it, I, <laughs> uh, no matter how hard I try. So it, it, it's one of those things where, again, I mean, it, that's a another mode of nostalgia, I think. It's that sort of Looney Tunes practice of taking classical music and setting it to, you know, farcical scenes. Uh, and it re- works really, really well for this. So... Uh, the music is probably the thing that we haven't mentioned yet that I would highlight. Michael, what do you got? The Scott Farkas scene is uh, is really wonderful and cathartic for anyone who was bullied as a child, as I was. Uh, just just the idea that this sweet kind of paunchy 
loser kid is pushed too far by this by this bully and finally just lets him have it. Um, and and watching watching that little as I think I called him earlier that watching that little weasel cry is just immensely satisfying <laughs> to me. And what's even more satisfying is the way his mother protects him afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 they're afraid his father is going to be furious about this, and his mother just expertly expertly uh, threads that needle so that mm-hmm. no ill effects end up falling on Ralphie. It's, right. a, it's a wonderful scene, and the mother I think doesn't get enough attention when people talk about this movie. But she is she is uh, not as flashy as Darren McGavin, and of course I don't even know what the actress's name is. Uh, but but that that character I think is essential to the the way this movie is put together. There's a lot of layers of that little moment too, because she's also taking away from the father a moment to be proud of Ralphie for being the macho man that he wants to be. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's true. <laughs> Because so, I mean, who oh, knows? But, who knows how he actually would have reacted? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's Melinda Dillon is the name of the actress. Yeah, that's and, right. That's right. And 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 she was actually also in um, Slapshot, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> with Paul Newman, the uh, the hockey movie. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, and also about that same scene, uh, there's the the moment where he cries, like when he sees when he her, his mother sort of shakes him out of his sort of mania in beating Scott Farkas half to death. Uh, and, and he looks at her and he kind of comes to his senses and he starts crying himself. That is incredibly moving to me. And I, I never fail to tear up just a little bit. It's just like the, the welled up emotions, not only of getting in trouble for beating up him, but all the frustration with having his seemingly his dream of a BB gun falling away. This is after, I think he's got, I think this is after he's gotten a C plus for his, uh, his, uh, his, wonderful uh, composition he's written about why mm-hmm. you get her. Uh, and, and so he thinks all of his hopes are dashed. Right. And so, um, and, and all of the emotions that, that, the, that the little boy, I can't remember his name right now, uh, uh, Peter Billingsley, uh, brings to that character. I, I, it's really an impressive scene. You're right. Um, I agree with that. Um, well for me, it's, uh, I, going back to Darren McGavin, the end of the movie, well, near the end of the movie, when he kind of, surreptitiously we think of him as being this oblivious sort of like almost ogre like like hideous ogre but he knows what ralphie wants this whole time right and he uh gives him that bb gun like on the sly uh between uh you know keeping it from his mother and i have to say like that has always struck me as so um like is my favorite part of the movie um as particularly the moment like, because it just reminds me so much of my own like relationship with my own dad um and and i mean it, we lived in a house very much like that one in Cleveland when I was a little kid. And, 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 uh, like he reminds me in so many ways of my dad in his sort of mannerisms. And when Ralphie, when he asked Ralphie, if he knows how to fill the BB gun full of BBs, he, he gets this look on his face. He goes, Oh, they run all over. Right. And, and I, my dad said that exact phrase to me the first time I was, uh, uh, like ro- loading my own BB gun that he had bought me. And there was just sort of this moment of father son bonding, uh, right there where that almost, unbridgeable gap uh, between those two characters has been bridged um, with the giving of this gift. And it's one thing, I mean, for all the movies trashing of consumerism and making fun of it, um, it it does sort of realize that there's a, uh, there is a redemptive element to it as well um, when it's done with the right heart. Right. And and I feel Mm -hmm. like that to me is, is like my favorite little moment of the movie. So Mm -hmm. Um, do we have any other uh, uh, things to say about this movie? 
Oh, just one thing that just came to mind when you mentioned that is that uh, my uh, next door neighbor, they've since moved out, but they had a dog that I've never once seen poop in its own yard. It always came over to my yard, <laughs> and uh, my name for it was always the bump of sound. Yeah. <laughs> His reaction when they eat the turkey is uh, is one of the great like, uh uh, well, reaction. he pulls it together so quickly, though. It's such a great dad moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Put your clothes on. We're going out. Yes. Yes. Well, um, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, indulging me with this conversation uh, for a, a movie that speaks to my own sort of uh, childhood in many, many real ways. And so uh, I had a really good time. We will be back in January. We uh, are taking... Uh, a sabbatical from uh, the Christian Humanist podcast. So be on the the lookout. Keep uh, abreast of things on the web page, uh, for or the Facebook page and the web page uh, for future episodes coming out at the beginning of January, where I will be filling in for uh, David Grubbs for just a couple more weeks as he uh, becomes the uh, a dad himself uh, <laughs> as he's adjusting to that life as, as uh, Mr. Parker. So, um, well, uh, gentlemen, you have a merry Christmas and thank you very much. You too. Uh, this is uh, for Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore. This is Danny Anderson uh, signing off with another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Remember to let your sins be strong and your faith be stronger. <laughs>